Thank you, choir. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. Colossians 1, 21 to 23. If you sat on the table in your doctor's office, and maybe this is a new doctor, you sit there and he's beginning to examine you, and you ask him the question, where did you go to school? And he says to you, I uh, started out at UAB and then uh, I quit and opened up this practice. Every last one of us would put our clothes back on and we'd walk right out the door, <laughs> never to return again. If, uh, if you were on trial for your life and your representation, your lawyer, had dropped out of law school a year before finishing you would probably want new representation. And it wouldn't give you any comfort if he turned to you and he said, uh, it's okay, all the stuff in your trial they covered in the first couple of years, I was there for that. <laughs> probably not. Nobody hangs a certificate on their wall in their office that says completed three years of coursework at the University of Alabama. No one. There's a reason that football players hold up fours during the fourth quarter. You have to finish. You have to finish the race. Three quarters of solid football does not make for a whole game. Just ask Texas A&M. I'm just saying. A few years of med school does not make a doctor. You're only a lawyer if you graduate with a degree and then you pass the bar. No matter who we are, Christian or non-Christian, we all recognize the importance of perseverance, of finishing the course. Until we get to the Christian life for some reason. For far too long we have pretended like the Bible says nothing about perseverance, about finishing the race. We say things, we have conversations like, well, he, uh, he, he lived like a devil once he hit college. But I remember one time when he was four and he passed by a church, he said the name Jesus, they dunked him in some water. and So I'm confident he's looking down from heaven on us now. As if the Bible has nothing to say about the life that we actually live in Christ after we confess Him as Savior. And we laugh at some of those things, but we've had those kinds of conversations, or we've heard people have those kinds of conversations about our faith. In our text this morning, Paul's going to urge the Colossian Christians to finish what has started. To finish the race, to persevere. Look at Colossians 1, 21 to 23 with me. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, 
which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I said a couple weeks ago that when we began our study in Colossians, that there, there isn't a whole lot that we know about the church in Colossae, simply because we, we lack a lot of information in the Bible. But I do think it's helpful to put together what we do know as sort of a background for why Paul is so concerned with perseverance here of the Colossian church. Now you'll remember that Paul didn't found the church in Colossae as far as we know. So that's why there's no real information on the church like in the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts is mainly concerned with Paul and Peter and the works that they did in establishing the church. Well, if Paul didn't establish the church in Colossae, then we don't have a whole lot of information about what was going on there. But we do know about the surrounding area because Colossae is in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Some of the churches that are in Asia Minor may ring a bell to you. Ephesus, Laodicea, Smyrna, Pergamum, Sardis, Thyatira... Philadelphia, these are the churches called out in the book of Revelation. Colossae is one of those churches as well. So we do know some things that are going on in the surrounding area just because of what is called out in other churches near there. And what seems evident from this letter is that Paul has received some information from whom we think is the founder of the church in Colossae, a man he calls by name in verse 7, Epaphras or Epaphras. Now, Epaphras is only mentioned two other times in the Bible. One other time is at the end of Colossians, and then another time is in Philemon 23, where Paul calls him my fellow prisoner. So assuming that both Philemon and Colossians were written at the same time, which I think they were, Paul is probably in prison together with Epaphras. And Epaphras, the founder of the church at Colossae, is telling Paul what is going on in the church back home. And Paul, since he has nothing better to do, I guess, begins writing a letter to the church at Colossae to encourage them and to warn them. And what we also know about the city of Colossae is that it was formerly a hub of commerce and trade. So what was probably there is a migrant community of mixed ethnicities and backgrounds in Colossae. So many different cultures are probably living there. So Paul is putting a strong emphasis to this church to continue in the faith and reminding them of what they have when they confess Christ, what they are confessing. So we're continuing our series in the book of Colossians. I've called it Heavenly Minded. And what we have defined heavenly mindedness as is having one's mind governed by the attitudes and affections of the very Spirit of God. We saw in week one, a couple of weeks ago, where Paul tells them to keep going and growing in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and reminds them of the hope that is laid up for them in heaven common theme running throughout this book that he says in verse 5. But then last week, Paul reminded them of their confession in Christ as, a, as the second person of the Trinity. It's this Christ that they're confessing. And what that told us is that our confession, in other words, matters. What we believe about Christ actually matters. And we dealt with a lot of deeper theological concerns in relation to Christ last week. But the reason we did that is because these are first-order concerns for us. 
Now, a first order concern is something that makes one a Christian or not. That's what makes it a first order issue. So God is three persons, one essence. That's a first order issue for us, and it has been for the Christian church throughout time. A first order issue. This Christ that we believe in, that we are confessing, He is supreme above all other things. And if you aren't confessing that Christ, then you aren't a Christian. Plain and simple. So putting together what we know about the city, what we know about Paul's situation, and what we know about other things emphasized in the letter in the last couple of weeks especially, it's likely, not certain, but likely, that there are some creeping up in the church beginning to teach false doctrine and beginning to lead others astray and pull them toward some other source of hope. Or at least, Paul is very concerned that that might happen in the coming years. So this letter to the Colossians is really helping keep them grounded in truth, centered on true confession of faith, and focused on the hope of heaven. Now look with me at verse 21, what Paul reminds them of now. He says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So he's reminding them here in verse 21 of who they were before Christ. So what this should be is a deterrent for them. This should be a reminder of what they used to be, what they formerly were, and deter them from going back to it. If you've ever talked someone out of divorce or leaving their wife, you might say something to that same effect. Do you remember what you were before her? Do you remember that you had no clean clothes? Do you remember what you smelled like? (laughs) Do you remember that? It's a deterrent from what they were. They were in a pitiful state at one point. Uh, desperately awful at one point. First he says there, you were once alienated. They were strangers, unknown to God. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 2. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So the idea of being an alien or being estranged from God is to be one without hope. That's what Paul means there. So something like the word foreigner probably doesn't do it justice to what he's actually getting at. This is more like an an individual that's separated from the source of life. And in this particular context, in Ephesians 2 and 4 as well, it's to be cut off from God Himself. The second thing that he says there is that they were hostile in mind. They were an enemy. Some of you may even have there, if you're reading the NIV, may have the translation, enemies in your minds. That's exactly what Paul says. It's literally the words that Paul uses. You were enemies in your minds. Now, now Paul doesn't say to whom they were enemies, but if you, I think it's pretty obvious in the context that he's talking about enemies of God. He uses the same kind of description in Romans 5 when he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. So he uses some of the same vocabulary there, the same similar context there to, to, to discuss how we were enemies of God. And here he calls out being enemies 
in our minds, hostile towards God. The status of the Christian prior to coming to Christ is to be cut off from life and to be an enemy of God. The last thing he says there, doing evil deeds. What does hostility in mind look like? Well, it manifests itself in doing of evil deeds. Now, tell me if I'm wrong. Actually, don't tell me. It's rhetorical, so don't say. Uh, (laughs) We have a category in our minds for evil. And then we have another category of just regular sinfulness. Naturally, we have those kind of, we separate them out into two different divisions. We have, in one category, we have, we have lying, the stuff that we all do regularly. And then we have evil over here, like Hitler. Okay? I think all of us would agree Hitler's evil. But I don't think that's really helpful in terms of how the Bible actually defines evil. I think that's, we borrow that from the culture. The culture has a really big problem defining evil. I think most everybody out there would say, in the culture I mean, would say, Hitler, evil. We have no problem with that. But once you start coming away from Hitler, it gets a little bit more shady in the general population. Right? Yeah. You back up away from Hitler, and it, and it gets a little, bit, a little bit gray. Everybody can agree, well, you killed, you know... Two million people, six million people, 20 million people, that's evil. Uh, Outside of the womb, of course. Inside of the womb, it gets a little more shady for them, right? So evil is hard to define in the culture at large. But I, I don't think that's how the Bible defines evil. Look here at how the Bible defines evil. Jeremiah 2.13, you don't have to turn there, you can just write it down if you trust me. If I hear pages turning, then I know. Uh, Jeremiah 2.13, he says, For my people, this is God speaking now, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and and, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God, God defines there two evils that his people have committed. The first is turning away from him, or he says forsaking him. And the second is turning to something else. That's not Hitler. I think all of us probably at one point or another can align with the Jewish people there and say, I'm guilty of that as well. The Bible has a much more broad category of evil. See, it's a matter of desires. There are certainly actions that come out of those desires that Paul literally calls here in Ephesians or in Colossians evil works. But these are simply actions manifested from us desiring something else to God, thinking that something else can fulfill our needs. But doesn't that describe a person? before Christ. Doesn't it accurately describe a person before Christ? Paul puts all of this in the past tense for the Colossian church. And the same is true for us. But the point he is making, the first point we need to consider, is that the church is a collection of people with a criminal history. 
The church is a collection of people with a criminal history. We were once criminals against the living God because of our sin. But both you and I know that if we define evil this way, if we define the works of evil this way, simply the works that come out of turning away from God, turning our back on God, preferring something else to God, then we all know that evil has not vacated the premises just because we came to know Christ. In fact, every last one of us still have the temptation in our hearts from time to time to flee away from holiness and pursue that which can never satisfy. Exactly. That might be the physical act of lying. That might be the physical act of gossip or adultery. Or it might be an actual thought, deep-seated emotion of lust or pride or envy that we dwell on and deep down we enjoy. Sometimes I get punched in the gut by the words of the hymns that I recall from time to time. One of the hymns I love the most is Come Thou Fount. And there's that phrase, that, that refrain that comes back to my mind all the time, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for that courts above. There's a plea in that song for the Lord to take my heart and own it for His purposes. To not let it wander because deep down I know that my desires from time to time is to leave and to flee. That deep down my nature is bent towards evil deeds. But before Christ, that's all I knew. That's it. That's all I had. Before. But look then in verse 22. He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. So in a surprising turn of events... Though we were once cut off and enemies working evil against God, Christ reconciles us to God. And we discussed this in full last week, but it, it bears repeating because it's the cornerstone of our faith. In reconciliation, God's wrath is absorbed in Christ. He takes our place. Now, some of you might take that statement for granted that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. And it might come as a shock to you that in our culture, this is offensive language. The logic of the culture goes something like this. Wait, so you're telling me this God that I don't believe in is mad at me for my sins. You're telling me that I deserve punishment for my sin, for my sin against Him. Now, who does He think He is that He could judge me for my sin? Who does He think He is to judge me for what I've done? Well, Paul deals with this whole issue in Romans. In Romans 1, 18, you'll remember the verse probably. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against 
all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we have there the clear statement that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. But then just a couple of chapters later in 3.23, you all know this verse. In 3.23 he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you put those two things together, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It becomes very clear the point that Paul is making. That we need Jesus. But then he says in 24 and 25 of chapter 3, he says, And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So all have sinned and are worthy of the wrath of God, but God puts forward Christ as the propitiation, which simply means a means of satisfaction. He put Christ forward as a means of atoning or satisfying the wrath of God. Now, The reason that I bring that up and the reason that I harp on that is not just because it's a cornerstone of our faith, but I want us to think for a moment about the change that takes place between those two verses. Between Colossians 1.21 and 1.22. I want you to dwell on that change here. It's the second point that we need to consider. That Christians have been given an incredible gift of grace and mercy. We have been given an incredible gift of grace and mercy. Dwell on that for a moment. Even for the rest of your life, this incredible gift that you've been given here. I have a a friend that went with me to, to Belgrade, Serbia last October. And... We were going around uh, Belgrade, and there's a university, and it's split out over the, over the whole city, really, uh, different buildings and things like that. And uh, next to each building is, a, is a, usually a park, and so we would go into that park where the college students sit before classes start, and we would just kind of go around sharing the gospel with these college students. And my friend is going with us, and when you picture my friend, picture Kramer from Seinfeld, all right? Uh, tall, lanky, crazy hair, very animated, and just, you know, kind of always sort of out there, very excitable kind of guy. And so we would go up to these college students and begin sharing the gospel, and he would come back to you almost every time with these, with these, <laughs> these people that barely spoke English. He would say, my friend, today is your lucky day. You just won the lottery. And he's, he's telling that, and he's pointing at them in their face, and they're they're kind of scared of it a little bit. And we would make fun of him afterwards because of what he did to these students. But what he's pointing to is the truth in Christ. That what I have here is a, a treasure. What I've been given in, a, in the atoning sacrifice of Christ is a miracle of grace and mercy. God had me dead to rights. I am a sinner. I do have a criminal history. Ask my wife. I was on death row. And not only does God pardon me, but He gives me a robe and a ring. That is not something that I deserve. He gives to me eternal life. Being overwhelmed by the grace that you have received on the cross. 
actually has a very real-world impact on your relationships. On every relationship you have, from perfect stranger all the way to your spouse and everyone in between. Several years ago, Andrea and I went through this marriage uh, program, I guess you'd call it. We were trying to set it up in the church, and, uh, and so we went through it with the first pilot group. And it's about 16 weeks long, but the first eight weeks is nothing but the gospel. So people come in from all walks of life with all kinds of marital issues, or, or, or maybe they feel like, hey, we're pretty good in our marriage. And, but the, whole, for the first eight weeks is spent on nothing but the gospel. It's focusing on what you have done and what you have received. Here's what you have done, and here's what you received. Are you a perfect giver of love? I don't think so. But yet you have received love and grace from God. And so it becomes apparent over eight weeks that here I am, this kind of person. Who am I to turn to my spouse and then choke their neck for the things that they've, they've done to me? Exactly what we're, what we're talking about here. But by week eight in this program, you're confessing sins to your spouse. Sins that you really never thought you would probably tell anyone else. Now I realize that for some of you in this room that probably gives maybe a little heart palpitation at even the thought of that. But can you imagine how much relief is brought to a marriage when one spouse can say to the other, I have sinned against you and against God and I'm really struggling here. Can you imagine what a relief it is to confess that and to have your spouse turn back to you and say, I forgive you. I love you. And no matter what, we are working through this together. Can you imagine what that kind of grace does to a marriage? Some of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you've had a point in your life where you had to say to your spouse, I've sinned and I'm really struggling here. And your spouse has turned to you in grace and love and has told you that no matter what, we're fighting through this together. Even when they had every right to leave. It's because of the radical impact of the cross and dwelling on this transition between verses 21 and 22 that we can radically forgive. That we can give that incredible gift that Christ has given to us to someone else. Or that we even desire to. Church, it's easy to cut bait and run from the people that hurt us. It is easy to do that. And there may even be times where it's justifiable to cut bait and run from something bad that someone has done to us. And nobody would fault you for it. But when your mindset is radically changed by the grace that you've been forgiven, by the forgiveness that you found in Christ, when you get that you have sinned against God's holiness and therefore deserve punishment, but that He forgave you, when you really get that, those feelings of animosity and resentment begin to break down. And what begins to be replaced is forgiveness and mercy and grace. And it'll move toward the surface. And you'll be a person characterized by compassion and love. How radical would our churches be if we as Christians 
focused on that transition that has been made in our lives, on the grace that we've been forgiven, uh, the grace that we've been for, that we've been given. Amen. That's the kind of love that attracts people to the gospel. It did in South Carolina, where the, the radical guy walks into the church and kills a bunch of people in a prayer meeting. And then on TV, his, their relatives are saying, we forgive you. And all the world is looking on at these people and going, how in the world is that possible to forgive? It attracts people to the gospel. We're all hardened criminals. We all need a lot more grace Now, if you lack grace and mercy and compassion toward others, maybe you're slow to forgive. Maybe you have a a problem holding grudges. Maybe maybe you're quick-tempered. The problem isn't, that's how I was raised. The problem isn't, I'm Irish, it's in my blood. The problem isn't, I'm red-headed, so I'm fiery. The problem isn't, I'm just a blunt person. The problem is in your understanding of your own conversion. You don't grasp it, what's actually happened to you. The Bible ties forgiveness that we've received in Christ directly to the compassion that we have toward others. Remember the parable of the wicked servant, where he's forgiven an insurmountable insurmountable debt and then turns and chokes out the person that owes him money. And how wicked he's depicted. Do you remember the the Lord's Prayer, where He says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But then do you remember the verse that happens right after the Lord's Prayer closes? It's not quoted that much, all right? For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. There are some of you that have long histories of bitterness and animosity toward others. So it may even, some of it may even be for good reason. But let me tell you, that bitterness won't do anything to them, but it will eat you alive. It will destroy your relationships with others around you. It will destroy your relationship with Christ. If you're struggling with this, might I recommend a little book called The Grace Awakening by Chuck Swindoll. It might change your life on that idea. It did mine. But, there's always a but, and in this case there's a but. It's actually an if. So look with me at verse 23. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he says, all this is yours if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. If. Let's understand what Paul is saying here. He says, first, you must continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That's pretty evident there. It's pretty self-explanatory. But what is the hope of the gospel? Well, we define that back in verse 5. He says, the hope laid up for you in heaven. So you're not shifting from that goal. So basically what he's saying is you must continue to fix your eyes on the end goal. You are living with the end in mind. In other words, every single one of us 
has to get up every single day and make a choice that today I am beginning the day with the end in mind. I am living for Christ today. I am going to make decisions today that reflect that I am living for Christ. I must get into His Word. I must seek the Lord in prayer. I must ask Him to stir my heart's affections toward Him. That is a daily decision that you make. It's a battle that we're waging. A spiritual battle that we're waging. And it's not for no reason that Paul tells us at the end of Ephesians to put on the full armor of God, to equip ourselves with the armor of God. In other words, we have to divest ourselves of all earthly temptation and with our hearts stirred towards Him, make decisions on a daily basis that demonstrate our priority is in the kingdom of God, not on the things that are on earth. That is a tall order. But as Christians... We are required on a daily basis to make that decision. And only you can make it. It's also understanding that it's only through Christ that I get there. Christian perseverance is rooted in heavenly mindedness. It's only by fixing our eyes on heaven and the hope that is found there that I can actually persevere. That's it. That's the only way it actually in the end happens. At the same time, here's the comfort. And I'm incredibly comforted by the way Paul uses the words here. Look at verses 22 and 23. Paul says first in 22, He has now reconciled. That is past tense. He has reconciled. Then he says in 23, if you continue in the faith. So that's present tense. If you continue today in the present tense, he has reconciled you. In other words, what this is saying is that perseverance is proof of his reconciling work. That if I make it to the end, I have been reconciled. I am walking out what Christ has done for me, in me, to me, through me, and in many cases, in spite of me. Paul says it's only under these circumstances that we are reconciled to God. If we persevere. The goal is to make it to the end. Look here at the end of the verse. He says, The gospel that you heard Then he says, proclaimed in all creation. That's the second thing. Then he says, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he says, there's three things here. He says, you heard it. That's specific to you. All creation is hearing it. That's all of creation. I, Paul, became a minister of it. But look back at verse 6. He says, the gospel has come to you, Colossians. You heard it. The whole world, it's bearing fruit whole world is in, is in view here. And then he says, you learned it in verse 7 from Epaphras, the minister of the gospel. Paul is paralleling exactly what he's already told them in verses 6 and 7. And he means the same thing. The gospel is going forth to the entire world and it is bearing fruit. And in the resurrection of Christ, all of creation is put on notice. 
A new day has dawned. The gospel will now continue bearing fruit across the entire world. So he's reminding them again, continue to press on in this faith. Everything has changed. And you are beneficiaries of that change. So while I must wake up daily and make the choice to follow Christ, there is a tremendous amount of comfort in knowing that He has given me His Spirit and is moving me on in perseverance and that He will never let me go. Why does this matter for us? As a new pastor, a new congregation, we're getting used to each other. I think there's some important things that this brings to bear on us as a congregation. First of all, the body of Christ is meant to aid you in your perseverance. In addition to the spirit that he's given within you, he has put around you brothers and sisters. In Colossians 3, we'll get to later on, Paul's going to tell us in no uncertain terms that this body that is around you is meant for you, that you are all meant to be together. That you're to bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, admonish one another, and encourage one another. All of which is for your growth. The body of Christ is meant to be for your growth. It is put together for you. You cannot forsake one another. You have been knit together. And by growth, I don't necessarily mean numbers. I mean maturity. Growing deeper and stronger. Your growing in maturity is for the purpose of enduring all the way to the end. He's given you that gift. Second, the pastor of the church is meant to aid you in your perseverance. Paul's going to tell us next week a little bit more about his purpose in ministry. But he's going to tell us that it's to present everyone mature in Christ. That is his goal. His purpose every week. His purpose every day. And the purpose of every pastor is to watch over the souls in the flock that's been entrusted to him. This is what drives me. This is my guiding light in the pastorate. A heavenly minded pastor is one who understands that one day I'm going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account for everyone he entrusted to me. That's more weight than you could ever place on me. To be heavenly minded in the pulpit is to understand that and to make decisions every day that work toward that end. Church, this is why membership exists. This is the purpose of church membership. Now, Some churches out there will tell you that church membership is really about getting people in the door and counting all our numbers and seeing how many are here and all of these sorts of things. So long as I'm here, that will never be what church membership is used for. I will never be the one that that stands before friends of mine in the community, assuming I make friends one day, uh, in the community, and says, well, the church used to be X, but now it's whatever. Since I've been there, that will never be me. Church membership is a Christian coming before the pastor saying, Yes, 
I want you to shepherd my soul. And the pastor making an agreement with that member, yes, that's what I am going to do. It's that Christian turning to the congregation and saying, I want you to help me persevere to the end. And when and if you fall, if I do my work as a pastor in training and equipping the saints for the work of ministry, we will all be there to pick you up and restore you and to walk with you in faith until you can walk on your own. The body gathers around you and restores you. My deepest desire is to present you mature in faith before the Lord. That means a couple of things, I think, for people that are listening to this. First of all, some of you will need to join the church. Some of you need to make a commitment. Some of you need to come forward and say, I want you to care for me. I want to be here for this congregation. Now, I'm not saying you have to join this church, but you need to find a church and join. Make a formal commitment. This is what I want to do. I want to be there for the rest of my brothers and sisters. I want them to be there for me. I want to grow and be shepherded. Second, some need to come to Christ. Maybe you've been sitting there and thinking, we were hostile towards God. That's me. There has to be a point at which you confess that to the Lord. And you say, I have lived in unbelief. I have lived in hostility toward you. And what can be had if you confess that in faith to Him is He will grant to you the same gift that the Christians in this room have been given. Freedom and grace and mercy and eternal life. It's yours. You have to confess it to Him and repent of the sin of unbelief. The rest of us in this room, we may need to repent of some of the relationships that we've built up over the years. Some of the anger and hostility and bitterness that we still have in our heart toward others. Some of us may need to confess that both to the Lord and to the person that we're hostile towards. We have to make amends for those relationships. We all need to play four quarters. What we're about to do in just a second, David and the team, they're going to come up and sing after I pray. And I want us to take a moment while they sing to think about the decision that the Lord wants us to make. What is he asking you to do? Is it repent of sins? Is it profess faith in Christ? Is it join the church? I want you to think about whatever that decision is while we sing. Then afterwards, I'm going to give to us a charge. What do we do next? What's the next step? assuming I've made one of those decisions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for the gift that you have given to us in Christ. I pray, Lord, for our time together as a church, that we be a body knit together by grace and love and peace. Because of the love that you have shown to us in Christ on the cross, Pray that you will drive us to forgiveness, drive us to mercy, drive us toward love. Lord, I pray that you unite us in this body through your Holy Spirit, that you bring us together in accordance with one another.
because of the mutual faith that we have in Christ. Pray, Lord, that we would learn to forgive one another. Pray, Lord, that we would reach out to the community around us the same grace and compassion that you've shown to us, offering them to the gift of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Stand.